The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It's April 23rd, 2021, and there are 540 days until the Vancouver Municipal Election. This is the Cambie Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. What a show we have for you today. Another emergency podcast. Man, we were not, we were not kicking into high gear this early in the season last election, were we? I don't think we'd even started the podcast yet. We only started in like <laughs> the spring of that year, I think. Yeah, so, well, let's thank our lucky stars we exist already this time, because man, is there news. One is the loneliest number. Melissa DiGenova is the only remaining MPA city councillor as Sarah Kirby Young, Colleen Hardwick, and Lisa Dominato leave the MPA to sit as independents earlier this week, and school board trustees step down today. The NPA caucus now sits at a lonely two park board trustees, Mr. Cooper, the mayoral candidate, and Trisha Barker, as well as Melissa DiGenova herself. What do you make of this? So the school trustee announcement was today. The three three of the four remaining councillors was, I think it was back on Tuesday, it was earlier in the week. It's just been wild. I was kind of expecting after Ken Sim launched and... John Cooper was appointed, there was enough discontent that it felt like, you know, Sarah Kirby Young and Lisa Dominato were at least leaning towards being more on his team than on John Cooper's. Melissa DeGenova planted her flag pretty quickly after he was announced that she was standing behind Team NPA and she was going all in on this. She's sticking with the party brand. So that's not so surprising. Colleen Hardwick's a bit surprising. She, I don't think she was happy with the appointment. She was potentially going to seek the NPA mayoral nomination, but what's going on in her mind and where she thinks she can go, we can get into. And then the school board trustees jumping out, I think kind of shocked everyone. Yeah, I, I definitely wasn't expecting it. I think that if if there's going to be a person who was well aligned with the NPA board, it was going to be Fraser Ballantyne. But that appears to have not been the case and this appears to have been done completely without the input of the school board trustees at all or really any of the elected members of the MPA and the only one that appears to be able to live with that on council is Melissa DiGenova. As to whether or not this is a good or bad idea for her to stick with her party, the dance with the one that brung her, what do you think? I'm actually not convinced it's a terrible choice. So the NPA is the oldest political brand in Canada, continuous. It's won more elections than any other force in Canadian history that it's competed. So statistically, it makes sense, right? It's a strong brand. It did really well last election, despite running a kind of lackluster campaign that faced a lot of challenges from every different side, you know, 
they still elected the most candidates on any of the three positions. They almost took the mayor. It was almost an MPA majority council. They had five councillors at the start of this out of 10. Now they have one. So, you know, historically, it makes sense. Yeah, so something's gone terribly wrong. <laughs> so one of the things that comes up is Sarah Kirby Young, Colleen Hardwick, and Lisa Dominato cite their frustration with the board, both the process in appointing John Cooper as the mayoral candidate, but also just talking. I saw Kirby Young tweeting this out about, you know, the lack of consideration for equity and diversity in the current board and how she in particular wants to represent a more progressive kind of small C conservative type approach in City Hall. She didn't use those exact words. That's the sense I got. If that's the case, I feel like the honorable thing would have been to have left the party in December 2019 when Rebecca Bly did. Like she was the brave one. The rest right now seem like they're kind of smelling political fortunes in different directions. And I don't know if it's as principled a stance to leave now as it might have been. I frankly don't think it is as principled a stance. It is still a, a stance that is probably going to hurt them politically, so I will still count it as principled, but not top marks. You had to have left when the going actually got tough for those people that you were thinking about protecting, rather than those people and yourselves. It's worth noting that in January 2020 is when the NPA caucus started to distinguish itself from the board. I don't know if that's when they created the Twitter account, but they started issuing statements then. They put out another later in 2020 that caucus called for an AGM to be held in January of this year, and they're still not being an NPA AGM. Uh, apparently, the caucus was trying to activate the Societies Act provisions where if 10% of members sign a petition, they can trigger a special meeting. They don't seem to have been able to do that, which might be the other reason they're leaving. There's not enough support within the party left for them. Yeah, and that would be surprising. Like, if the the party has lost its confidence in its elected membership, that is either a testament to the organizing strength of the people who took over the party, which I mean, like they did take over the party, so there is that, but or just the weakness of the organizing strength of the people who are attempting to do this. Like you say, so much of municipal politics is amateur hour, and uh, a lot of this kind of reeks of amateur hour to me. So there's lots of speculation about where everyone might land. Mike Howell had a good analysis piece in Vancouver is Awesome, where he spoke to each of the different characters in this. He only managed to get a text back from Melissa DeGenova saying that she wished everyone well. <laughs> I mean, how great, how gracious of her. <laughs> yeah. The NPA actually put out the, the, you know, the NPA board put out a similar kind of snarky very, reaction on Twitter. It was very conciliatory. I don't know. I, I thought it was about as, like, you know, we, we wish everyone well and hope we feel bad that they're leaving and blah, blah, blah. It we wasn't. thank you for your service. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> they do want to fill a slate with diverse voices who will represent Vancouver, they say. No, they won't. Let, let's, let's Insert jokes about Italian-Canadian diversity here. 
Sari Kirby Young and, and Dominado have left the door opening to running with the Better City Vancouver, which is the Ken Sim vehicle, kind of getting the gang back together. Hardwick has said no to a Better City, as well as somewhat unnecessarily, in my opinion. Yes, Vancouver. I really like that. This is the idea that, yes, Vancouver is going to get the gang back together. And they have teased that this might happen and ostensibly be the Mark Marison vehicle. Mm-hmm. But I just like the most NIMBY counselor going with the most YIMBY party yeah would require a board takeover or a cerebral hemorrhage in my opinion for that to have happened so so it'll be interesting to see i mean hardwick has kind of left this question floating about whether she's going to launch her own mayoral bid i had heard rumors there's an organizing team of essentially all the most powerful nimbies in the city behind her but that predated the john cooper announcement and now it's unclear where her power lies because she can't effectively probably run against Cooper. I have too heard about this cabal of shadowy NIMBYs. (laughs) I mean, if she tries to run, she's going to run the same campaign Wei Young did to probably about the same effect. Yeah, which is enough of a spoiler to knock Marison and Sim out of the race. So the question just becomes, you know, does hubris or humility win in these each of these individuals' hearts, and I think hubris is the nature of municipal politics. In other news, social housing no longer needs to go to public hearing in limited cases. So this is some good news coming out of City Council. In a Dan Fumano piece, he reports on a motion that passed uh, unanimously with Hardwick abstaining and Michael Weep in declared conflict, Twas ever thus. <laughs> As we'll go on as we enter our recurring uh, segment charts on the podcast. So this was a really interesting motion. It is somewhat limited. It identifies a number of areas in the city of Vancouver and says, let's change the zoning bylaws there so that if you bring forward a social housing project that otherwise meets all of the requirements and predetermined zoning, you don't have to have a public hearing. It will just be approved by staff and you can build your housing, which I think is something a lot of people who watch council and especially public hearings have been really crying for. Nevertheless, this did lead to some people on the left and right. I think I saw Bill Tillman, former NDP strategist, decrying this as like an affront to democracy. Democracy has died again, as many would say. And so... It is promising, though. I mean, we need more housing. Social housing is hard to oppose, although I guess you can abstain from it, even though that still counts as a vote in favor. I think it was also notable because when this came to the floor of council, Sarah Kirby Young proposed on the basis of suggestions from people from the social housing sector to increase the amount of density that's allowed in this. So instead of floor space ratio of 2.5, you could have up to three. That means you can fit bigger rooms and more units on the same plot of ground within the, I think it's a six-story height restriction. And that still passed unanimously. So good motion that will hopefully mean more social housing gets built in Vancouver easier. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Like the, the idea of every single thing that is over four stories having to go to city council is a bit ridiculous in this day and age. So I think it's a positive step in the direction of 
democratizing and streamlining the development of application process at City Hall. In voting records news, it is the return of charts on a podcast. See them in your eye. You've taken a couple of, of votes from the Vancouver Open Data Portal and done some number crunching. What have you found? Yeah, so because we declared a conflict on this issue, I guess perhaps because I'm just speculating he might own a business in one of the affected zones, which seems like a reach at this point. I wanted to look at how councillors are voting, you know, who's objecting the most, who's abstaining the most, and the Vancouver Open Data Portal, which I think is thanks to Andrea Reimer and the Vision Vancouver slate a number of years ago, because she tweeted at us when we were posting some of these initial things on our Twitter account, saying, you know, it was great to launch this and to see it get used. It's a really good website. We'll throw the link in the show notes and you can pull all kinds of data. Like, for example, you can look at how councillors have voted in every single one of the roughly, I think it was like 2,500 votes since election day in 2018. And what we can see is they really like to agree with each other. 51% of all votes have carried unanimously and another 39% still passed. Only 10% of motions have failed. Now, this includes all the procedural motions, every motion at committee, all the amendments, anything that's voted on. But it's still not the fractious, you know, broken council that we kind of paint in our mind when we think about the divided slate we have. Yeah, and that did surprise me a little bit, I will have to say. The the council prime for gridlock narrative is one that has kind of taken hold of city council and permeated out into the zeitgeist of, of people who are not only just paying more than cursory attention to, to city politics, but people more broadly. And I think that that is still on some of the more important things, unfortunately accurate. And, and this paints a, a, a picture of a council that can push through a lot of procedure, but hasn't been able to get the rezoning done that is the bread and butter of its work. Yeah, one of the things this doesn't count is, you know, motions that pass, but are still killed by referral. So you can pass a motion unanimously or even with a majority, but still have it be amended such that it gets referred back to staff and that's how it passes, in which case it's effectively dead. And we've commented on that a number of times. And I don't have the comparison for, you know, how was the vision majority able to pass votes? Because there maybe nothing failed. So in some interesting notes, the person who has abstained the most is Councillor Hardwick, who has abstained in over 10% of the votes that she has taken. 241 times, yeah. She really likes abstaining. She's the great abstainer of this council, which, again, I will point out, in the Vancouver Charter, an abstention is counted as a yes. So it's weird to use that method other than to try to be like symbolically opposing something even though you're still counted in favor of it the person who has opposed the most is gene swanson probably no surprises there while the person who has the most declared conflicts is of course michael weeb yeah i looked back through the different years and in 2018 and 2019 michael weeb was barely ever uh, declaring conflicts i think he did three in those first two years and melissa de genova and sarah kirby young who are both married to a police officer, regularly declare conflicts on those matters that come up. They've both done about 35 times. But yeah, Michael Weeb, 53 conflicts predominantly in the last year. 
We've talked about a few of them. There was a social housing vote just this week. He's declared conflicts in reference to, I think, a motion around library late fees, Easy Park. Veterans plates. Lots of things. Uh, Veterans plates. Meanwhile, the most absent are Kennedy Stewart and Rebecca Bly, interestingly. I can see Stewart having a lot of other duties that take him away from council. I'm not sure what Bly's reason for being absent for 12% of votes has been. What I did find really interesting, though, is if you take out all the absents and abstentions and just focus on yes and no votes, the top three people most likely to vote in favor are Adrian Carr, Lisa Dominato, and Pete Fry. Fascinating stuff. Lisa Dominato, I think we knew about. We knew we knew that she has been the most pro-housing of any councillor, so far as I can tell. Or at least uh, among the, definitely in the top half, and definitely in, in the the most gettable of the swing votes. Fry and, and Carr is a, a bit more surprising to me, and I wonder what type of votes they're voting in favor of and what type of votes they're voting against. That would take a lot more work than I'm willing to do to break down, because yes. categorizing 2,500 votes would suck. <laughs> but a one vote that's coming up very soon will be on whether Vancouver should host the Formula E race. This seems very exciting. So Formula E is like Formula One, but it is for electric vehicles. Uh, So the race would be a showcase of sustainability and a lifeline to the city's struggling tourism and hospitality industries, writes Andrew McCready in the Vancouver Sun. It just seems like, for one thing, these things are massive undertakings, like uh, a Formula One or uh, event or huge, events that uh, bring tons of money to a city so it would be an interesting get for the city to bring it here it doesn't seem to carry the same democracy hobbling laws as the olympics or the world cup so that's probably a upside to the democracy conscious of our uh, listeners This motion was brought forward by Sarah Kirby Young and Michael Weeb, which, in addition to the race, would feature musical and cultural events and a conference focusing on climate change and sustainability. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I wasn't aware of Formula E before seeing this motion, and I think my initial thoughts on it were a bit more skeptical, thinking of it more as like an Olympics 2.0 type bid, or even some of the Formula One stuff can kind of take over city capacity in a way that not necessarily in the greater city's interest, but this one does sound kind of fun and does have a connection to Vancouver's like green brand that it tries to go for. It just feels on brand for the city and it'd be nice to bring people here for a party after we like really sorely could use one. Admittedly, I'm, I've always been more in favor of these big like international cultural events, Expo Olympics, that kind of thing. But those dispositions notwithstanding, it, like we need something to, to come together and focus on as a city and i think this would be a fun thing and it's on brand for us so and would be a net zero emission event certified by the united nations itself well one counselor out in the city of port coquitlam was trying to fight for at least one single carbon sink in a tree that was slated to be chopped down in favor of a few parking stalls in the midst of a development application there. This stems from a in-camera meeting that the council had where Porco Quitlam councillor Laura DuPont was very in favor of saving this tree and seems to have crossed the bounds of propriety by leaking publicly some of the information from this in-camera meeting to 
opponents of the development, the mayor and council found out not having any stronger powers to expel her or punish her. They voted to censure her and removed some of her committee sittings, including I think the Metro Vancouver board that gave her a bit of a pay bump. She sued the city (laughs) under the charter and tried to claim that this was unjust punishment and that her mm-hmm. you know actions were reasonable and it has turned out she lost yeah no shit she lost you can't leak stuff from an in-camera meeting it's not they are in camera it is in a dark box they are shrouded in secrecy you are not allowed no matter how much you might love the tree The censure ends next month, but it still doesn't seem like it's going to be the end of the animosity on Port Coquitlam Council. The councillor, DuPont, has said she's never going to give up fighting for the people who elected her. She's got a lot of support in the community. Meanwhile, Brad West, the mayor out there, says she's creating her own problems for being immature and childish in her civic dealings. DuPont is hoping, I believe, to run for the federal NDP in the next election, whatever it happens. Brad West has generally been more connected with Mike Farnworth and the provincial NDP, but there was a hilarious rumor briefly on Twitter that he might seek the BC Liberal leadership race, to which he just laughed and laughed at. (laughs) But it would be funny to watch. And they laughed and laughed. Oh, the BC Liberal leadership race is going to be funny to watch one way or the other. We'll leave that for Politicoast. Lastly, before we move on to Vancouverada, the development at 105 Kiefer Street has been, well, there's been a ruling in uh, the BC Court of Appeal that reveals that senior city officials followed a script in rejecting the 105 Kiefer Street application and that these were prepared in advance of the Development Permits Board's meeting. There was only one favorable vote on the Development Permits Board. That was current city manager Paul Mockery and then Jerry Dubrovnovi. Jerry Dubrovni. Dubrovni. Dubrovolny, 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 Cherry Dubrovolny. <laughs> and former city planner Gil Kelly voted against it. This story is really weird. So it's broken down in the Georgia Strait, but it seems like effectively city staff were directed to draft scripts both in favor and against this development for the three board members to consider at this, what was going to turned out to be a very controversial hearing that ultimately killed the 105 Keither project. And they just read from these talking points. And it was understood by staff members that they were going to be scripts. Yeah, and that is unusual because if you're an administrative board, you should not have your opinion pre-drafted for you. You should uh, have your own opinion on the board of your own accord. Now, BD is counting this as a bit of a victory because they lost an earlier attempt to judicialize the the hearing and have this considered as a trial as opposed to a application for judicial review. Normally there isn't a opportunity to cross-examine witnesses during a application uh, that would only occur during a trial and they're getting this kind of information in is a victory for the petitioners. It says appeal allowed in part BD should inform this court as to the exact orders for document production or cross-examination it seeks, the city should then respond and the court will then consider and make specific orders as appropriate. Right. So basically what that means is that it will be staying in court of appeals, but they've won this thing for document production to get more evidence into it rather than relying entirely on the affidavit evidence. 
And of course, we end every episode with a Vancouverada, and this is in honor of the recent Earth Day. Yeah, yesterday was Earth it, Day, and I found a, oh, it's a decade-old piece now from Vancouver's Awesome that looked at the 42nd Earth Day. Today, I guess yesterday, would have been the 52nd. And it tried to look back at the history, and while there's not much proof that the first Earth Day in 1970 was celebrated in B.C., or in Vancouver. One thing did happen in 1970 in Vancouver that's quite notable for the environmental movement, and that was the creation of Greenpeace here in town. Yes, Greenpeace was actually founded out of a West Side basement in 1970. The most notable story of the Greenpeace creation was, you know, people took to the seas to intercept whaling vessels off the West Coast. That's a bit apocryphal and hard to verify, but it is argued that, you know, a number of local environmentalists and people from the Sierra Club who were getting fed up with the boring kind of activism wanted to take something to the next level. And they came together and created a new committee to really launch a new kind of environmental activism. And this was the, the new subcommittee of the Don't Make a Wave part of the Sierra Club. They actually came out uh, with this plan to sail a boat to Amchitka Island that was adopted by the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and that boat had to have a name. And although no such boat had yet been committed to the cause, the name of the boat came from an offhand comment by what is stated as a quiet man named Bill Darnell, who made this comment at the tail end of a committee meeting held in the fireside room of the Vancouver Unitarian Church on Oak Street. When one member flashed the peace finger sign and said peace as he left, Darnell replied, make it a green peace. And thus the name was born. From not making a wave to the NPA's tsunami across the shores as they collapse the foundations of their historic party. It has been quite an episode and we will keep you posted as more breaking news develops here in the city of Vancouver for the 2022 mayoral election. 540 days to go, people. We're going to get through this one way or the other. For the Camby Report, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night.